Well, good morning. This morning, we are picking up where we left off in John 4. I'll give you a second to turn there. We're going to take the last story in John chapter 4. Starting in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. Let us not be hearers of the word only, but help us to do what you command and to love what you love. Amen. Well, I have a list of questions uh, that I'd like to ask after I'm dead. And that's not that weird, so do you. Uh, You want to know, like me, how Noah's Ark smelled. And you'd like to ask Noah how he kept all the carnivores from eating all the other animals. I want to ask Lazarus what it was like to die twice, uh, and if that second time felt different. And related to our passage this morning, I want to know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John why they picked the stories that they picked. We know that Jesus performed lots of miracles and talked to lots of people. Uh, and had many conversations that were not included in the Gospels. We know this because John uh, says so at the end. Uh, At the end of chapter 21, he says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So why this one? Why does he give us these 11 verses? After all, there's a lot to choose from, and there's a lot of stories just like it to choose from. For example, Matthew in chapter 8 records a different story with a similar request. 
A centurion's son this time is dying, and at this time Jesus marvels at his faith and does not challenge the crowds as he does here in John 4. At another time in Mark 5, uh, the ruler of a synagogue named Jairus asks Jesus to heal his dying daughter. In that story, the girl dies while Jesus is still traveling, uh, but then Jesus resurrects her later at her house. So John doesn't include those, but he does include this one with the official's son. And I just want to know why. Why pick this one? What is it about this story that John in particular wants us to see? And by extension, the Spirit of God wants us to know about Jesus. My best guess, if I had to answer, is this. uh, That John wants us to see a pattern that he started back in chapter 1, verse 11. He, this is Jesus, came to his own people, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, Jesus is going to perform many signs and miracles and wonders to many, many groups of people. And yet, he has the most lackluster reception among his own people the Israelites, especially here in his homeland of Galilee. And they continue to give him the least amount of respect and honor. Now, we shouldn't be surprised at this. Uh, The prophets, the gospel writers, and Jesus himself prepare us to expect this to happen, Uh, that the Gentiles are going to respond more favorably than the Jewish people. So, John is not just telling us that Jesus can heal a child. We, we know that, and we will come to learn that he could even heal a child who has already died. Instead, John is showing us, through the Gospel of John, that Jesus cares about all kinds of people. And he's going to use geography to tell us that. So, I think I have a map this morning Is there any way we can... There we go. I'll put it away in a sec, don't worry. Uh, Right away, verse 43, John tells us that Jesus is coming back to Galilee. He's been in the south, now he's coming back up. Remember, this is where he was born, uh, in a southern town called Nazareth. We've already seen him perform many signs and wonders in Cana, uh, a neighboring town to Nazareth in chapter 2. We've seen him travel south underneath the map, uh, to Jerusalem to cleanse the temple. We've seen him speak to Nicodemus, again in the south, in chapter 3. And so far, in chapter 4, we've seen him linger in Samaria to speak to the woman at the well. And based on her testimony, we've seen many conversions and new life. So now Jesus is coming back up to Galilee, and he will raise the son of this official, Soon after that, he'll go down again to Jerusalem uh, to heal a paralyzed man. After that, he'll come back up north to Galilee to feed 5,000 people uh, and then heal another blind man near Jerusalem. The point is this. By recording these places, John is not just giving us uh, a travel log, a travel diary of what Jesus, uh, the places that Jesus went. He's doing something more profound. He is showing us how Jesus intentionally interacts with groups. 
specifically in groups and out groups. And these groups describe the categories of people who are in the religious inner circle and the categories of people who are out. And you know that the ultimate in-group contains the Jewish people and all of the subgroups underneath that umbrella, like the scribes and the Pharisees. After all, they are the people of God. They have been given the law and the prophets, and most of them believe that the Messiah will come to elevate and exalt the Jews over the rest of the nations of the earth. And and whether the Messiah does this through politics or through a military intervention, uh, it doesn't really matter. As one New Testament scholar puts it, when Israel's God acted, the Jewish people expected to be restored, with the rest of the world looking on in awe, making pilgrimages to Zion, and or being ground to powder under Jewish feet. But of course we know that Jesus doesn't fulfill these exact expectations. Instead, he extends God's invitation broadly, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is available to all who would trust in the Lord. And so here in John, John wants us to see how often Jesus goes to the out groups. So last week, George showed us how he ministered to the Samaritans through his time with the woman at the well. And this morning, uh, we will see how he ministers to another outgroup, a member of Herod's court. So here we go. We start in verse 45 with uh, with a welcome. But the welcome is deceptive. Jesus is returning from Samaria, heading to Galilee where he grew up. And the Samaritans welcome him. But do they welcome him because he is the Messiah and they want to put their faith in him and trust him and all of his words? Or do they welcome him because he does really cool stuff? Back in John 3, Nicodemus said as much. He said, Rabbi, we know that you're from God because no one can do these signs unless they're from God. So Jesus has a reputation, especially in this area, for doing signs and wonders. He has a public reputation for doing really cool stuff. But this is not honor. It's a magic show. Jesus is going to draw a crowd wherever he goes in Galilee. And the crowd wants to be entertained. Show us a miracle. Prove yourself with a miracle. By the way, yesterday's miracle doesn't count. We need a new miracle today. Remember that the Samaritans, in verse 42, believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And yet, the Jews in his hometown demand more. And so the big uncomfortable question that John is setting up for us this morning is, would their belief last? After the miracles wear off, do they have lasting faith in Jesus? And unfortunately, we can read on and find out uh, that it's a sad question. The same crowds in Galilee will continue to misunderstand Jesus in chapter 6. By the end of chapter 6, even some of his disciples will abandon him. Uh, And in chapter 7, we find out that not even some of his brothers believed. And so it seems that his demonstrations of power uh, through miracles are not leading 
in every case, to large-scale repentance and faith. And so Jesus comes back to Cana, and at the precise moment when everyone wants to see a miracle, Jesus will be asked for a miracle. And the shallow belief of the people is on his mind. The warm welcome is fickle. Okay, one more note about geography, and then we can be done. Can I have the map again? Or we can just imagine the map. Okay, it's all good. Uh, The story revolves around two cities, Cana and Capernaum. Verse 46, he came again to Cana, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. The two two towns that shape this story uh, are Cana, which is just a few minutes from where Jesus grew up, and Capernaum, there we go. We're on a time delay. And Capernaum. Capernaum uh, is just by the lake on the top part, and it's 16 and a half miles from Cana. 16 and a half miles is exactly the distance between the University of Kansas and Baker University. Uh, and that distance, 16 and a half miles, uh, is a major factor. And the question you should be asking is how fast can you travel? 16 and a half miles. Okay, that's the geography part, uh, and it's over now. You can kill the map again, thanks. I think I'm done with it. So we see this official, uh, more precisely would be called a nobleman, and his son is ill. The official probably worked in the court of King Herod. Uh, And whether this man was Jewish or Gentile didn't really matter much. His connection with King Herod in the court would have made him an enemy of the people. Herod was a puppet king of Rome installed in the region of Galilee uh, to raise revenue and keep things under control. So he was uh, a puppet king. And the Romans were not appreciated at all. So Herod is bad, and anyone who works for Herod is bad. Remember, our in-groups and our out-groups Nicodemus, in chapter 3, was a Jewish in-group. The Samaritan woman was an out-group, and this official is yet another out-group. So now the scene is set. Jesus stands in front of a mixed crowd with mixed motivations. Many want to see a wonder. The official wants his son brought back to health. There's even tension between the crowd and the official. They probably do not want Jesus to help the official. Jesus is in a tough spot. So first, the official makes his request. He asked Jesus in verse 47 to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So he left his dying son 16 and a half miles away in Capernaum, to find Jesus coming back to Cana. This is incredibly risky. There's no way of knowing exactly when Jesus is going to roll through. So likely he has exhausted all of his other options if he's willing to leave his son's sickbed to seek out a miracle worker. What does he know of Jesus other than that he can do wonders? This is an act of desperation. 
There's no indication that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, only, only that he can do signs and wonders. So if there's a chance that Jesus can heal his son, he's going to take it. And then we get the response from Jesus in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And this sentence, this response is what keeps this story from being a very straightforward healing. This statement is kind of a kerfuffle. What we expect Jesus to say is, of course, I'll come with you to heal your son. But instead of saying that, he says something to the crowd. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And it's really hard to hear. Even John Calvin thinks this is hard to hear. And he asks, why is Christ now so harsh when he usually welcomed other people who asked for miracles? Well, our answer is in the, is in the word you. Uh, Jesus' words are for the crowd, not for the official. The you in verse 48 is plural. It's the southern all y'all. So he speaks in response to the official. He speaks to the crowds in his answer. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And it is a protest against the wrong kind of popularity, the popularity that would come to demand signs and wonders. He's already said in this chapter that he is here to reap a harvest of salvation, not to entertain and please the crowds. And as he sees this group of people in front of him, he knows that though their eyes seek miracles, their hearts do not seek to obey the Messiah. John Calvin again puts it like this, when miracles were performed, the crowd did not benefit from them properly but remained in a state of stupidity and amazement. So they had no religion, no knowledge of God, no practice of godliness except that which came through miracles. And compared with the signs and wonders performed among the Samaritans, the Galileans seemed to expect and demand much more. Remember, all Jesus did with the Samaritans was to go to one unpopular woman and tell her hidden secrets. And he's already done amazing signs and wonders in Galilee. And so why isn't his presence enough? Why aren't his words enough? Well, verse 49, this doesn't seem to register at all with the official uh, he does not necessarily care about the dynamic between Jesus and the crowds. He is focused on his son. So he repeats, Sir, come down before my child dies. See, he thinks that Jesus must be physically present to heal. And so now Jesus has to correct something in him. He has to correct something for the official, as he's already done with the crowds. See, he thought... Uh, that Jesus was, as one of <clears throat> the Jewish historians puts it, a miracle monger. A miracle monger was apparently a widely used term uh, for when you wanted to mock a less than reputable rabbi. Apparently, it was a popular side gig to earn extra money uh, for rabbis when they weren't busy 
uh, to promise miracles and uh, sell cures. So they, they promise a healing, usually, get the money up front, uh, bring your best books, bring some potions, pray a lot, and try your best. And it's wild uh, that this apparently worked enough that there was a term for it. Uh, so that's probably the category that he's thinking. Okay, Jesus is one of these rabbis with a side hustle. And so now Jesus has to correct this. And he has to tell this man, no, I don't need to be there. I can heal from a distance. Uh, I don't need to follow you to your house. I'm not only powerful when I can touch the sick. I don't need a direct sight line. I'm not a regional power. And I don't need special prayer books or potions or, a rit- or any rituals. I can do all these things through the word, through my word, the word of power, the same word of power that created all things. And so Jesus simply says five words, go, your son will live. Now Jesus gives no sign at all that the healing has taken place. And so once again, he is genius in his ability to solve problems in front of him and also handle the crowd. See, the crowd will not be satisfied in their demand of miracles because only the official and that household and Jesus will know that the healing has happened for now until it gets written down. But he sets up a choice in the man. Do you leave to find out if Jesus was telling the truth Or do you stay and try to convince Jesus to come with you? To leave is to believe that the healing has happened. That Jesus can do this. But then he would be leaving the presence of the healing rabbi. And miracle mongers need to be on site to perform the healing. (sighs) And he's got a long walk to find out if this can happen. So can you, can you feel his anxiety? He does not want to offend the healer. He's already repeated his request once. Should he try again uh, to persuade this guy? Well, he makes his choice. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And again, what do you think that walk was like? How fast can you walk 16 and a half miles? Somewhere, nagging in his mind would have been doubts, right? Maybe Jesus just lied to me to get rid of me. Maybe he's back there mocking me with the crowds right now. And yet, there was something about Jesus, something about his reputation, something about the way that he spoke that made this man believe. Well, in a kindness to him, he didn't even have to go the whole way. His servants meet him before he arrives at home. And they tell him that his son is recovering. And now he knows Jesus has proven himself. Or has he? Maybe it was a coincidence. He should ask another question. And so to be sure, he asks, what time? Just in case it was a fluke. 
And sure enough, the hour that the boy began to recover is the time that Jesus spoke the words. And now there is no doubt at all. It cannot be a coincidence. And he believes Jesus along with his whole household. Notice that the man believes in verse 50 and believes even more in verse 53. He moves from a little belief to a lot of belief. And by the way, that's our story too. We move from belief to belief all the days of our life, and we ask God to grow our faith. And if someone asks you, how many miracles happen in this story? Don't answer one. There are as many miracles as there are members in this person's household, plus the healing of the child. See, Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do to bring healing and to bring new life. He is here, as we read earlier in Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he will do that to the people who are on the inside, and he will do that for the people who are on the outside. Now, there's at least three things to learn from this. Uh, We're glad that the child was healed, uh, but there are also some timeless truths that will continue to haunt us during the week. See, we can identify with most of the people in this story, even if we don't like it. We are the fickle crowd, the official, and also the dying son rolled into one anxious blob. And first, we know already how similar to the crowd we can be. We get excited about Jesus until he begins to say difficult things. We prefer the Jesus that performs signs and wonders without disrupting our self-actualization. And for that, we must repent and ask Jesus how he might use us in his work. Second, we have all experienced the kind of uncertainty that this official felt as he traveled 16 and a half miles to see if Jesus was right. Jesus said his son will live, but can he trust that? And we all live somewhere on this timeline over and over again. We've heard the promises of God. We wonder if they're true for us. Maybe they're just true for other people, better people but not for me. And then we find out again that God is good and he keeps his word. And then we repeat the cycle and repeat the cycle. And wouldn't it be great if we just took Jesus at his word the first time? Wouldn't it be great if we believed that Jesus cares for us more than he cares for the sparrows? Wouldn't it be good if we believed that gaining the whole world isn't good for us if it threatens our souls. Just think about the last decade of your life. How many times has Jesus been good to you? And why doesn't last year's goodness count this year? But praise the Lord, we move from belief to belief, day by day, 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 year by year, And decade by decade, we say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Last, even though we don't want to admit it, we are more like the dying son 
Here in the text, it's plain to see uh, that this child is completely dependent on the words of Jesus. His hopes for life, his fear of death, even his next breath are bound up in how Jesus will respond to this request. His dad knows this too, as he's willing to leave the son's deathbed to find Jesus. It is equally true, but not as plain to see, that our lives are bound up in the words of Jesus. We have no more control over our futures, even our next breath, than this child. Now, we don't believe that uh, because a vast array of systems, both good and bad, come together to obscure this fact. We've done incredible things through technology, medicine, agriculture, engineering, and other things. And often we think that we are enrolled in a story where we gain more and more control over our circumstances. And Jesus is just here to help us course correct when we make errors. But the true story of our existence is simpler and much less flattering to ourselves. Jesus Christ counts the days of our lives as he counts the hairs on our heads. He holds all things together. He sustains all things. And this includes me and you and all the moments between now and eternity. He brings us in and out of this world through the power of his word, in his timing, not our own. And he does this not as a tyrant, not as a disappointed father who lashes out, but he does this in love. How do we know that? Well, we already read once from Isaiah 61 about Jesus who would come to bear the sins of the world. Listen to what he wants. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We know that Jesus took his final breath, forgiving those who crucified him. And we know that his atonement saved all who called on him and believed in his name. And that included those in Samaria and even those officials in the court of a wicked king. And so we say, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Would you pray with me? Father God, we have already sung some profound things this morning about how you order our lives. We sang, mine are days that God has numbered, I was made to walk with him. We've sang, your mighty word was spoken and life and light obeyed, all chance and change transcending, supreme in time and space, you hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. And we read together that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ so that we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Father, help us to live like this is true. Grow us in our faith, teach us your word, show us your goodness so that we can worship you through times of joy and of sorrow as we wait for the day when Christ returns to gather us and sets all things right. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.